Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with my dear friend, Pamela Haig, the renowned scholar, author, and developmental editor for Hire. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and it is a special pleasure for me today to welcome Pamela Haig. So for full disclosure, uh, I have to say, Pamela is one of our best friends in the world. She is an award-winning author who also has a thriving developmental editing business. So she's written five books, published five books. Uh, Lord knows how many she's written that are, that are still on the shelf. Um, she has a PhD in history from Yale, but she, she, she's an accomplished writer in her own right. Uh, but her latest book is called Revise, The Essential Scholar Writer's Guide to Tweaking, Editing, and Perfecting Your Manuscript published by Yale University Press. And this emerged out of her editorial business. So if you can picture this, you know, people are trying to write books and they go to Pam so she can help them actually make this book they're trying to write, help them make it into an actual book. Uh, so she's the ultimate go-to person for people who are smart enough to be writing a book. Uh, and uh, so I can't wait for you to meet her. Pamela Haig, welcome to The Indispensables. Hey, Bruce. Great to be here. Thank you for introducing me so generously. Uh, well, it is, uh, it is a, a pleasure having you and a joy. And so um, uh, for people who don't know you, uh, can you explain? I mean, t tell us your story. You're, you're, you know, people go get PhDs at the finest universities in the world, and then they're trying to write a book, and, and they come to you for help. How did you get to be you? I guess there are a lot of ways to answer that. Uh, one thing that I've done is that I haven't actually taken a lot of the paths that were laid out for me. Uh, right after college, I got a PhD, and uh, instead of going the professorial route and becoming a professor, I uh, took a detour, ended up working um, in the foundation world in Washington, D.C. for a while, right after I got my PhD. Um, but then I took another detour, didn't really stay on that path either, uh, became a speechwriter for a while for um, an undersecretary of transportation. Uh, then I started uh, writing some of my own books, which I still do. And about 12 years ago, I kind of accidentally became a business person. Um, I accidentally became the sole entrepreneur of um, a developmental editing business that focuses almost entirely on scholar writers and helping them finish up their manuscripts, um, really digging in deeply and making some deep adjustments in them so that their brilliance can shine. So in a lot of ways, I ended up where I am by, by not taking all of the more um, common paths and the more familiar paths. And in some ways, I've probably done everything that people are told not to do. Um, I'm a really bad schmoozer. Um, I, I don't know how to network. So I'd always be the one like standing alone at, at you know, networking cocktail hours and things like that. I don't Twitter. Uh, I'm not a big social media person. 
Um, I'm a really bad negotiator, so I never really negotiated for raises in my old jobs or promotions, and yet I did get those things. So in some ways, it seems improbable that I've ended up with this flourishing business because I don't do any of those conventional things that people are often told to do to succeed. So so uh, some people would think, well, you know, you need a strategy based on the career best practices, and then you have to be very, very directed and climb one step uh, at a time on the ladder uh, to get somewhere. And what you're saying is, uh, you had one detour after another, and um, and yet here you are, uh, the author of five superb books and uh, running a business which is successful from a business standpoint, right? It's a lucrative business. So it's, it's fascinating that um, your PhD is in history. You also have an MFA from Goucher. I know from personal experience that you can hold your own with the best of them in the academy, among scholars, among the most educated people in the world. Uh, But I also know that um, your forays into public policy, your forays into the foundation world, and even uh, yourself as a writer uh, you you dive very deep into a whole range of topics. That's true. It is kind of a paradox because I've taken a lot of detours. And yeah, as you said, I never really followed that advice about thinking strategically about my work. Um, so in some ways, I've done all sorts of different things. Um, but if I look at it a different way, I've been doing almost since the age of five exactly what I'm doing now which is I'm pursuing something that I've always been incredibly drawn toward and passionate about, which is having opinions, having ideas, investigating things, trying to find ways to express ideas and opinions, moving words on the page, and now helping other people do those same things. I recently found something I had pinned up uh, on my bulletin board when I was in sixth grade, I think, which was this quote from Tennessee Williams. And it was all, what is it like to be a writer? You know, it is like being free. And I guess even in sixth grade, I was thinking, oh, yeah, this is the life I want. You know, I want to be free and I want to have ideas and write brilliant things. So in some ways, even though my jobs are varied, they've always had that core passion in them. That's been very consistent. I also never advertise my business. So to me, the only way that my work life succeeds is because I love what I'm doing and I want to be extremely great at it. And if I don't deliver that product for my authors because this is totally relationship driven, then I don't have a business. So I think for me, there's a real sincerity imperative in work. Like you've got to do something you actually and genuinely really want to be good at. And I don't think any strategy really compensates for that. Yes. So the common denominator, I guess, starting when you were five and carrying right through the sixth grade. I mean, if you can make it through the sixth grade, then, you know, you're basically you're on your way to a PhD from Yale, I guess. But but the the common denominator is learning about things and diving deep and 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 uh, gathering not just information but insight and uh, synthesizing that and and reaching uh, higher levels of understanding and then 
you said moving around words on the page so that you can share your insights with others. And now you've become, for again, more full disclosure, um, I had the great opportunity to spend a weekend where you helped me jumpstart my last book. And you, you do have a gift for teaching. And I think you do that in your writing, having read a lot of your work. Uh, but you you do that almost naturally interacting with people. You Your insights are so interesting that it can't help but move people's uh, thinking. Well, thank you for saying that. It's making me feel all puffed up. <laughs> I mean, I think my entire business right now, and for the last 11 years I've been doing this, you know, as I was saying, I mean, it really is all relationships and perspective taking. I think some of these lessons are probably applicable to any job. I spend a lot of time trying to think about the needs of my clients because this is a really intimate process. Um, often their jobs are on the line. You know, they need to get a book published or they don't get tenure. Sometimes they've been really criticized by colleagues or readers. And so they need to do a real overhaul, you know, in what they've written so there's a lot of vulnerability in this relationship, and there's a lot of ego in the relationship. So I spend a lot of time in my work life thinking about other people's egos, right? And I think a lot about one of the symptoms of ego, which is defensiveness. So to have a good working relationship, how do you get someone to kind of set aside their ego for a bit, um, become editable, um, think about making big changes and something that they care about a lot. Um, and how do you approach that really delicately? I think that's um, an incredibly important part of the relationship building that I do. You know, it's interesting because as, as a writer myself, uh, or a typer anyway, I've known a lot of editors and it's, it's maybe it's not true, uh, but the rap that a lot of editors get is, you know, that they are not writers, they're editors. And uh, in fact, you know, some editors are writers, but you must have a very different perspective on editing as a writer, as an, a very accomplished writer yourself. Um, and it must, I mean, I know it was a little bit intimidating for me as a writer working with you, um, but how does that change your perspective on your mission to help someone else bring out their best work? Yeah, that's, that's, everything really having that that dual perspective i mean thinking about your wonderful last book and indispensable and what really makes someone indispensable the thing that makes me indispensable to my clients is they know that i am as ambitious as as i can be for them like i'm you know as ambitious as hell for them i want their book to succeed <laughs> the minute they become my client i want them to win every award vicariously as if it were my own book. And I think that that kind of animates everything that I do and makes them feel as if I can understand how much they care about the work and I'm right there with them. Um, but again, I mean, that has to be sincerely felt. I mean, sometimes I very, very occasionally, you know, if I feel like maybe there's a personality clash, I might not work with an author. For the most part, I work with anyone. Um, but there's a lot of prep work that goes into opening up that space where people can feel comfortable um, 
with the editorial process. And I know how it feels, you know, so much work these days is creative. And if it's creative, then there is a little bit of our ego in it. And that makes it hard sometimes to deliver the product. So being in both positions as editor and author has, has been really helpful. Like, for example, before I send back a manuscript, I always read through all my notes just to make sure that if I were the author, I would feel comfortable with what I was saying to me. Um, so again, perspective taking and taking on the perspective of the author and not just the editor, I think is really important. But, you know, sometimes the, the job of an editor is to say things that are hard to hear and hard on the ego of a writer. Absolutely. We've all been there. I mean, that's, it's a very, so that defensiveness is probably my number one enemy in my work life because we're all defensive. When people see things removed from the page, often their first instinct is to say, well, what I really wanted to say there or what I meant to say, or I need this, you know, academic writers are notorious for this. They want to include every single fact they've learned. And in their own minds, every fact is important and vital so there's a lot of prep work that goes into building this relationship. Even if I'm just meeting the author for the first time, I try to explain beforehand what it's going to be like, you know, and that this is a good thing, not a bad thing. If you see a manuscript that's really, you know, where the, some deep adjustments have been made, that's a good thing. It's not quibbling over a serial comma. That is not really what the editorial working relationship is about. I, I try to do some of that prep work beforehand to, to get them into a position where we can focus on, on the product. Um, sometimes I think about, um, I think you're a fan of The Wire too, right? I love The Wire. Well, so sometimes I think of McNulty's line of, it would be an amazing world if, you know, the incredible world if we just stopped thinking about our careers all the time, you know, what we would accomplish if we just stopped thinking about our careers. And in some ways in this editorial relationship, you need the same thing. Like how great could this book be if I just stopped thinking about my ego? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably true of most people's actions and uh, ambitions, whether it's writing or, you know, if you can remove ego, how much better your experience would be, how much better your relationships would be, how much better your conversations would be, and how much better so much of your work would be. That's probably true for everybody. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that that lesson that I've kind of learned from being an editor is probably applicable to so many careers today. Um, because most of them, most professional careers are going to involve some kind of creativity. Um, they're going to involve that kind of production. The product is going to be better if you're able to really focus on the process and the outcome and not the emotions attached to it. So how much of your job is managing the words on the page and how much of your job is managing the relationship with the author whose ego is on the line and who is feeling vulnerable? Well, I don't believe in multitasking. I believe in obsession. So I only work on one project at a time. And in that sense, I try to immerse myself in what I think is that writer's mindset and world and temperament while I'm working on the book. So I am constantly aware and trying to shift back as I write comments, as I make changes, 
How is this particular person going to hear this? How are they going to respond? So it's really woven into the whole process of what I do. Some authors have really, really thick hides, and they are able to hear anything. And we know, working with certain agents, that that's a really useful skill. Um, And other authors are in an extremely delicate situation. And normally, I can figure out where they are in the process pretty quickly um, based on the kind of cover emails they send me. So it's very symbiotic. As I'm working, I'm always thinking about that editor's personality, their particular position right now in their lives and their jobs as I do the work. So how do you get good at reading somebody's ego, reading their vulnerability? How do you do that without walking on eggshells? And um, I guess, especially in the last year, how do you do that without being right there in proximity to them? Yeah, I'm I'm rarely in proximity to them, and I'm not actually a, a huge fan of the phone. Uh, so I do a lot by email. I'm pretty old fashioned. I'm not I'm not a big social media person either. There are all sorts of ways. I mean, the the first and foremost thing is to be quiet and to sort of let them talk as much as they need to talk or write as much as they need to write, and then really absorb that and kind of pick up on. You know, the use of language, are they um, able to kind of say, oh, there's this, 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 and this that I don't like in the manuscript? Or are they more in that phase of just, well, I think this is pretty good, but I got this feedback. It's a delicate act, and I'm not sure that there's a specific rule, but it really begins with openness and being expansive so that you're, you're picking up on whatever cues you can pick up on. Um, recently I did have a long phone conversation with a client and it was brilliant manuscript, but I could tell in that conversation that she really wanted to impress me that she was a very accomplished, uh, professor and she was, but her need to do that cued me in that she was probably very anxious about this process because she really wanted to give me her resume and, and that's fine. I'm, I'm not making fun of that at all, but it was a big signal to me. Oh, this is someone who's going to, I'm going to need to be a little tender here, you know, because she is obviously, if she's doing this, feeling a little insecure. But then other authors will come and say, please rip this up. You know, like, I'm tired of it. I, you know, and you can tell they don't have as much of an ego investment at that moment. And they're ready to just get it off their desk, stop thinking about it. I guess a lot of it is sort of like a therapeutic relationship, right? That's what it's sounding like. And, and, and I guess like, like an experienced therapist, when you have these uh, very uh, particularized conversations, because the conversations you're having, whether they're um, on the telephone or in person or whether they're email dialogues, whether they're escritorial uh, conversations, um, you, like a therapist, you learn to recognize cues uh, and you use the term uh, cue and sure for somebody who's like, well, I'm coming to you for help, but don't think I'm not an accomplished scholar. I am. Don't think I'm not an accomplished professor. I am sure. That's a pretty strong cue that uh, this person wants to make sure that you know that while uh, they need your help, they want to make sure that you um, are acknowledging their expertise or their position. Absolutely. And, and, and I, 
I love the other example you gave of, um, you know, I think this is pretty good, but you know, I'm, I'm, I got, I got the following feedback. That's like somebody who says, you know, well, my manager says this, well, we're doing this because they, the, the bosses are making us. And then you're, you're like, uh-oh. Yes. <laughs> and then also apropos some of your, your earlier work, you know, there, there are some authors who are younger who have never really had sort of that moment when their ego was tested, you know, and they haven't, they're not accustomed to getting kind of, um, constructive, really constructive, but, but, you know, blatantly delivered feedback from anyone, really. Yeah. I was talking yesterday with, um, uh, an individual who was saying that when he coaches people, uh, he tries to remind them that, you know, the, the greatest athletes in the world, you know, have coaches and the coach probably has a coach and the coach's coach might have a coach and coaching, teaching, developmental input is not for losers. It's for winners. Oh, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, looking specifically what I do, it used to be a more routine part of the publishing world where you kind of could become a co-thinker with an author. Um, and that was a creative alliance. And that's such a rare thing now, just given the publishing economy and it doesn't happen as much. Uh, but it's by no means remedial. It's actually, in my mind, and, and it used to be historically, a big part of the process of writing and having an idea and expressing it. Absolutely. And uh, what, what we hear all the time in the publishing world is editors no longer edit. Well, you know, so they acquire books and they shepherd books through the publishing process, but they don't edit. Well, gee, editing is such a gift uh, and, and having um, a skilled, thoughtful, expert editor results in a much better book. Absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 I take it that um, the, the therapeutic aspect of your work, the ability to read cues about where somebody's coming from and where they're going, how they're looking at their work, what they think they want from you, what they might really need from you, that this very human aspect, this relationship-centered approach is the answer to the question, well, gee, now that you published this book, revise, you know, what do I need you for? I'll just read your book. <laughs> yeah, no, they definitely still need me. <laughs> the book is like a little booster course, a little reminder, pointers, and I highly recommend it. But the book is gonna, uh, uh, your book, revise. I mean, there's a reason it's published by Yale University Press, and it's it's uh, it's a very very high level, but also very ex accessible uh, way for anyone who wants to turn their ideas or their research or their scholarship. Uh, into a piece of written work that others can can better appreciate. Yeah, definitely. It's um, it has memorable titles and reminders of some of the most common problems that scholar writers encounter and some of our habits and tendencies. And it also has a lot of before and after examples from some of my edited work. So my clients were gracious enough to let me use a sentence here and there. From their own works to illustrate some of the before and after revisions and that process, that dynamic. So anyone who's who writes idea-driven content could find that useful. 
Yeah, and that yet someone still could be drowning in their own drafts, their own prose, piles and piles of pages. And and when they get to that point where they're thinking, could somebody else please just take this and wrap it up? That's when they call you. Exactly. I mean, one of the services I'm offering is getting that manuscript off your desk for a while. And, you know, even brilliant editors need editors, as you were saying earlier. I mean, it's like, you know, a brain surgeon is not going to perform brain surgery on himself. I mean, this is just, you can know how to edit someone else's work, but when it comes to our own, that's always, um, it's always useful to have outside help. Yeah, it's perspective. And it's also like every single person who walks around with a flashing neon sign, I'm a special case, I'm a special case, I'm a special case. You know, they're just the only ones who turn the sign on. The the people without the sign are just better at hiding. it. And if it just like, uh, you know, everyone's kid is 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 unique. And sure, everyone's a special case, blah, blah, blah. But when you're writing a book, you're like, this is different. This is impossible. This is the impossible project. And so what is it um, uh, that that you do that takes these vulnerable uh, writers and how do you guide them through the process and get them all the way to the other side where they have a finished book that's so much better? Well, I mean, in terms of my own work habits, um, I don't actually, I sort of adhere to that policy with authors of, um, I'm going to be immersed in your work and, you know, that dentist office thing. If we need you, mom, we'll call you. I mean, I do not stay in touch with authors once I'm working on their actual manuscript. Um, I always try to think about the reader centric perspective as opposed to the author centric perspective. So that's a major part of what I do and a major way that I help them. Typically at first, all of us as authors, we're more about what is interesting to us and what makes sense to us. And we're not as much thinking about what makes sense to a reader and what does a reader need to know. So one of the major transformations that that happens in this process is putting that reader first. You know, that might mean all sorts of things. It might mean a bunch of deletions or let's rearrange these sentences so they make sense to the reader um, because my author has all this stuff in their head, so it all makes sense to them. Um, But to the reader, it's new. It could could mean tone. It could mean... um, basic line editing. It can mean organization. Um, I really work at, at every level um, to, to get that process done. And then basically I send back a manuscript um, that with an extensive cover memo and it's uh, they can accept those changes or not. Um, typically they work off of what I send. And uh, usually it's a very galvanizing process. Because you've you've really um, nurtured that manuscript and taken it to a whole new level, so that uh, the author then uh, you know should be very grateful and also maybe uh, could be inspired to to take it to another level themselves. Yes, absolutely. They usually, I think, usually accept what I what I do, and authors have told me I've saved them months of work. Um, it's always the best moment for me when I get a copy of that author's book. You know, when they send me the book, I have a whole shelf in my office just devoted to authors I've worked with. And it legitimately is 
the best moment. I love it when they win awards. I, I, that is the most gratifying. It's a really unique kind of working relationship because I can actually be their unconditional ally. And I feel like that sense of alliance is so often undercut in an office, <laughs> you know, potentially that we really are working together on something. But, you know, in my business, that is absolutely the relationship that I have. So, so I want to draw a bright line under two uh, things that you've said, and, um, and I want to come back uh, to, to one of them. Uh, so one thing that I'm hearing is there's, there's really two different skill sets that you're bringing to the table. One is the ability to read people, uh, to uh, empathize with them as a writer yourself and to realize where they're coming from and what their vulnerabilities may be and how they may be feeling in terms of their ego and this work and trying to read all that and figure out what's going to be the best way to work with this person and do your thing for this person, right? And then you said, you know, uh, like in the dentist's office, you know, I'll let you know if I need you. You, you wait in the waiting room. That the intervening time, uh, you really bring to, to bear a whole different set of skills, which is your ability as an editor, as a reader, as a writer, um, and, and that you do your alchemy with this manuscript and, and take it to a whole new level and then, and then deliver it back. So there's two very different sets of skills that you're bringing to bear. Yeah, actually, I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's really nicely said. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. There's that preparation for my work and the human element, um, the therapeutic aspect. And then there's the actual work on the page and then how I present that to the author. The other thing I'd like to bring out from you is, is the, the more general lesson uh, about the importance of thinking about your audience, your reader, that when you're trying to communicate in writing or verbally, uh, what you were saying as, you know, what you understand as an editor, what you understand as a writer, what you understand as a reader, what you understand as a communicator uh, is that you, you got to get out of your own head and you have to really think about what is going to make sense to the reader, to the listener. And, and that, I think, is a point uh, for, you know, even anyone uh, in any setting um, Communication is a critical skill set, and I think understanding that uh, it, and, and being able to act on that advice is, is really powerful. How else can you help people um, be more reader-centric, listener-centric, get out of their own head when they're communicating? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely uh, what I do and also what the work requires. But I feel like I almost have naive views about that because I think that the way that it happens almost can't be strategized. I almost feel as if it comes exclusively out of a place of sincerity, of I actually want to say this well. <laughs> I want to say this better. I care that other people hear it. Um, and I like the work. Um, I think that since, you know, I've never advertised my services. I mean, literally, I only get clients because they are referred to me someone recommend you know someone recommends me and it seems to me that that ha I, that happens and i can sustain that 
only because it is genuinely and sincerely true that ultimately I want that book to be good. And if that goal sort of in any position, whatever you're producing, however you're producing it, I think if that goal isn't there, it's really hard to, to outwit it. It's really hard to strategize or do a workaround. So what I'm hearing is you're saying that your sincere interest in making the book the best it can possibly be and your sincere commitment to the craft of not just writing but editing and, and I think probably reading, um, that, that that sincerity is why you're able to do that. Right, that that your genuine curiosity, that you really are reading to improve, you're really listening to improve, you're really trying to read your author to understand what they need and how to give them what they need. And I I, I think you're right. It speaks volumes that all of your work is referral based, um, and so much in the world is um, you know it's it's not just your file, it's 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 your hall file. What do people actually say about you? And, and, you know, what really makes a go-to person in any field is, you know, you say, well, who should I go to? I'll tell you who you should go to. You should go to Pamela Hay. I mean, that has literally happened in my life. Right? That is basically my clientele. That's how it grew. And the thing is, I mean, that comes basically from just if you can deliver a product that people very much want and need and you uh, know what you're good at and you like doing it, I mean, this is the naive part. I almost do feel as if that does get rewarded and recognized. Um, and even if you aren't on Twitter or Facebook and you don't have a marketing plan, that does get around. You know, it gets around that you can deliver this kind of work and that you care about it, which is why I think people have to do something that is mission driven. <laughs> they have to do something where there's enough soul in it um that they can always put the work first yeah i i agree with you completely and i think that you know especially if you want to be a premium service uh and i still think you should charge more um but um but especially if you want to be a premium service you have to be someone who other people come to you because either they've seen your work and they want you or someone else has seen your work and and told them you want to work with but what I wanted to draw out, uh, the, 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 let me be more uh, clear about uh, what I want to draw out, which is for somebody, uh, you, you were really giving um, your point of view about reader response to writing and the role of the reader in writing. And that if you really want to communicate well, you really have to think about your audience, where they're coming from and how they're going to read this text or you know, presumably the same is true of a listener, how they're going to hear what you have to say. And that when somebody is, is working on their own book or when somebody is working on delivering their own agenda as a message, it could be at a meeting table, right? That, that, that it, some people are not good at getting out of their own head. And I would argue that very few people are as good at getting out of their own head and thinking about the reader, thinking about the listener as you are. So what would be your advice to anyone who's trying to communicate? How do you get out of your own head and think about the reader, think about the listener, think about where they're coming from, have a more realistic point of view about what they're going to understand? Well, one of the most important 
tricks there, or not really a trick, more like a skill, I guess, is always, always actually have one reader in mind. And I don't mean vague, like, oh, I'm, I'm speaking to stakeholders. No, I mean, literally have the, a human being who you actually know, who you want to speak to and persuade in your head as you're working through something over and over and over. Um, it can't be, you know, a dissertation advisor, it can't be a boss, an ex-spouse, someone like that. It's gotta be, it's gotta be some, you know, it could be a friend, but it's got to be the actual person you want to speak to. And this might sound really basic, but most people aren't doing this. Yeah, well, well, Pam, it, you know, it, it may be basic or it may sound simple. That doesn't mean it's easy. And I think that very few people do this. You know, it's sort of like the person who in a conversation, what they're really doing is thinking about what they're going to say next. And, and, and so if you take that and, and match that up with the idea of reader response and listening, well, so, um, so you're thinking about what you're going to say next. So that sounds like almost like it falls into alignment with this, but it really doesn't because the people who are going to hear what you say are standing or sitting right in front of you or on the phone or on the other side of the, 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 the keyboard. So the best way to understand them would be to listen to them, look at them, watch, think. And, and, but I think as a technique, um, this is very actionable that when you're speaking, when you're writing, uh, think about writing to a specific person. How would you explain this to a specific person? And a specific person who is the one you seek to reach, right? So, you know, in my field, for example, an author always, always needs to have in her head, well, like I'm working on legal history right now, right? So, this author doesn't want just lawyers reading her book, but time and time again, and I'm not saying this to be critical, this is just the editorial process, she keeps using these terms that only a lawyer is going to know. You know, that a non-lawyer is never going to understand this terminology, but she wants a bigger audience than that. So she can learn to do some of this for herself if the next time she starts, you know, a book, she thinks, okay, I want Jane Smith to be able to read this, but Jane Smith isn't a lawyer. So Jane Smith isn't going to understand what, you know, the phrase strict performance means or the elements of private law or terms like this. So we can, we can learn to always pick someone out and, and have them right in front of us as we're writing. It's, it's, it is challenging because our instinct is to go um, solipsistic and think about ourselves and are we saying everything we want to say? But that's not the purpose of, of communication. <laughs> right, exactly. You're trying to get this stuff out of your head is part of it. And then you can even, you can imagine a fictive audience, but that I think can lead you in the wrong direction. Thinking, I, I love the, the idea of thinking of a particular person and trying to explain it. One of the things I do if I'm really struggling is I try to um, send emails to someone explaining what I'm trying to write because I find, you know, if I'm trying to explain it to them so they'll understand, well, this is what I'm trying to say. And then by the end of it, I'm like, well, cut and paste. Mm -hmm, exactly. Another, that's another um, skill as well, which is to step back and just say, well, what do I really want to say here? 
Um, sometimes when I'm editing, I'll do that with an author. I'll say, what does the author really want to say here? Um, and that can help give a little traction. You know, as we've been discussing this whole time, because a lot of this is gravitating back toward relationships and ego, you know, getting out of the head, getting out of yourself is really about these ways of imagining your audience and engaging with your audience. You know, they're, they're categorical things that, that help as well. Um, if you see that you're writing these super long sentences on the page, you know, that should just be a signal right off the bat. Maybe you need to pare this down. Maybe you need to simplify. There, there's never an audience or a reader who's going to be more interested in this or more knowledgeable about it than you are. So you need to always be about the business of elegance. And, and furthermore, your audience doesn't want to know as much about this stuff as you do. <laughs> you know, they, they want it to be curated. They want, they want you to do that work for them. So. And that's, that's one of the things about a book-length work. Sometimes when I'm talking with young people who get all their information from a handheld supercomputer and say, well, you know, I do lots of reading, they may say. And, and one of the things I always try to get across to somebody is somebody who's written a book-length work uh, your, your term curating the information is, is, is a really good way to put it. But, you know, this is somebody who has made him or herself an expert and then has made choice after choice after choice, not just of what to include, uh, but what not to include. Uh, they've vetted the information. They've, they've fit it together in a way that makes sense. And so one of the things about a book length work is that it's, um, not just more words, but reflects a very different process of uh, learning and analyzing and interpreting and and communicating. So true. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why being a, a book editor uh, or a book doctor, which essentially is is what you've become. I suppose so. The only thing that I never, ever will say that I am is a book coach, because I've learned that I'm just not sadistic enough to play that role. Like, I can never play the role of like badgering someone to hand in chapters. I think if you were to do that, knowing you, I think it would be hard for you to do it with a straight face, I'm guessing. It really would. It would be like, hey, how's it going? Is there going to be a chapter coming anytime soon? <laughs> but but the, the work of doctoring a book, because and it's really um, interesting to me because you don't do the primary research. You, you, you don't have the depth of interest that the author, him or herself, has. And yet what you're doing is you're working on, on, on a book scope, but from, from the outside. And it also must just be you know, in terms of feeding your mind with a diversity of input from experts who are who are wrestling with their expertise uh, must just be a constant learning process. Yeah, that's one of the best things. So I'm sort of an intellectual omnivore. So I've dealt with almost every kind of topic imaginable. I, I wrote a book for an ex-mayor. I've worked with hedge fund people. I've worked with scholars of every stripe, and it's definitely one of the most gratifying parts of the work, just to be able to immerse myself in that world. But it's also super cool because not only am I their ally, 
it's almost like being a grandparent. Like it's not literally my kid. <laughs> like, I, I love it. You know, it's fabulous. But I don't have to be up at 3 a.m. with the squalling book. You know, ultimately it's their book. And so it has just the right amount of buffer. You know, I, I'm all in when I'm working on it and I'm going to really root for it. But then I do get to go home, you know, at the end of the day and uh, just be in their acknowledgments. Or <laughs> so it's, it's a really wonderful intellectual and creative uh, position to be in. And um, I guess another thing that might be applicable to anyone who has to produce content it works better when you're able to approach any of this as expansively and as openly as you can. Um, every time I open up a new book file to edit, I'm like, this is really cool. I don't know anything about this topic. I don't know anything about this author. I'm going to learn about them. You know, I'm going to just see where they're headed. I'm going to see what they want to argue. And the less that you bring into these creative moments, any kind of um, agendas, you know, or presuppositions, the better off the process is. And that's that intellectual omnivore in action. Yes, definitely. Um, so as our time is winding down, let me ask you, um, when you give advice, uh, to, if you were to give advice to someone, if you were to, if somebody's saying, wow, you know, an intellectual omnivore, wow. You know, uh, an, an accomplished author. Wow. You know, uh, um, you know, and, and, and I mean, I have I have barely scratched the surface of your many accomplishments. Um, and and uh, and I can say from personal experience, also a heck of a lot of fun to hang out with. Well, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but when I was in college, one of my friends gave me just casually made a comment that has like haunted me for the rest of my life, which is you really shouldn't do an uncool thing in a not good place. <laughs> but in all seriousness, you know, there was like this kernel of truth in what she said. Like, I would always tell people, don't hold your life hostage to a career that's uncool that you don't like. You know, I would tell people, don't move anywhere to some not good place just to get a job. I think it's always good to have a few dreams in your head working simultaneously. If you're young, you're even if you're older, you know, don't just get stuck on, oh, if this one thing doesn't happen for me, then I'm nothing. You know, try, try out a whole bunch of different dreams in your head. That, that is really useful. And then paths open up, because I really believe in, in serendipity. I believe that there are always opportunities, but you have to be in a position to see them and not blinkered on just one career. And I was just talking to my son about this, because I guess another thing I'd say um, that I would draw out of my own path is that I don't think you can really outwit the trends. You know, I don't think you should be doing something because someone said that it's the big job of the future and everyone's in STEM or, you know, da, 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 do this, do that. Um, I just don't think that it works that way. I don't think it makes people happy. I, I would always tell someone, do something that you actually like, even if you're not a genius at it, but, but you love it, rather than getting in chains to some job that you're brilliant at, but you don't like. Don't try to outwit the trends and, and don't, don't do an uncool thing in an uncool place. Exactly. <laughs> Pamela Haig, 
Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Oh, it was a delight. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> in our next episode, we'll talk with somebody else who's in Baltimore, Stephanie Ibarra, who's the artistic director and producer at Baltimore Center Stage. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about gotoism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.